All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Father, thank you for this day you've granted and beautiful day out to see the sun come up over the horizon. Thank you for bringing us out to your house to study your word. I pray that you guide our thoughts as we study now in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're going to look at the symbols for the church in the New Testament today. And uh, there's about five of these that um, are used to depict various aspects of the church. We have the head and the body. Who's the head? Christ. We're the body of Christ. Okay, The head and the body. Um, we see that in Romans 12, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and Colossians 3.15. We have the bridegroom and the bride. That's a very interesting metaphor for the church. We are the bride. He's the bridegroom. Does the, that mean we're, we're feminine? No. It's a picture. The vine and the branches. Um, I am the vine. You are the branches. branches yeah. Out of John 15. The shepherd and the sheep. This is a very interesting one. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. Christ. And we're sheep. If you know anything about sheep, yeah, we're sheep. Um, the high priest and the kingdom of priests. That's an interesting one out of 1 Peter. And then there's the cornerstone and the living stone, Christ being, of course, the chief cornerstone. So that's what we're going to look at here. The head and the body. What does that sort of depict? Well, when you look at the head and the body, and, and, and Paul uses this metaphor, where does the body take its directions from? The head. The head. Alright, so Christ is the head, we are all the body of Christ. So where do we get our directions? We get our directions from Christ. The body is in subjection to the head. And not only is the body in subjection to the head, but there's a certain unity there, right? Yes. Where to be unified with the head. What happens when your body and your head don't get along? Yeah, there's problems, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. When the body doesn't take directions from the head, you know, you're in a wheelchair or you're dead or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of nasty things that come out of that. Um, how well do you think the church today takes directions from our head? I mean, I hate to, I'd hate to see, you know, I hate to see the physical manifestation of the church. You know, it would probably be this multiplegic in a wheelchair, you know, or something like that. It just doesn't take directions from the head. But we're to experience unity with the head. We all work together. And, and the great metaphor that Paul uses in the, in the body, the church is the body of Christ, is that we all have a different thing to do. We all have a different function within the church. We are to be gladly to work in service with the head. We're to work with one another. We... You know, your, your two fingers can't argue together. They need to take directions from the head for, it to, for your body to function right. So let's look at this metaphor. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, which is really the best passage to talk about this. 1 Corinthians 12. And this is right in the um, passage on spiritual gifts. And there's a lot... There's an awful lot we can talk about here, so I've got to be careful not to burn up all of our time looking at this one metaphor. Um, verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The metaphor that Paul is using here is that we, as individuals, we're part of the body of Christ. We all have a different function. 
Your body doesn't consist of one big thumb. Your body doesn't consist of one big eye or one big ear. Your body has many different members, many different parts to it. And all of those parts, when they work together, it's a beautiful thing. But when those parts don't work together, you have all kinds of physical problems. And so it is in the church, the body of Christ. It says we're all, we're all one body. For in one spirit we were all baptized in the one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free and we're all made to drink of one spirit. What's he saying there? When you came to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ. What does that mean? You got dunked in the water? No, it's not talking about water baptism. Identification. This is spiritual baptism. When you became a believer, when you came to know the Christ as your Savior, God placed you, the Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ in a unique spot, in a unique position that, by the way, only you can fulfill. You've been baptized, you've been identified with one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Axiomatic truth, right? And then he uses a couple of illustrations here. He uses the foot Call it the foot syndrome, the eyeball syndrome. If the foot should say, uh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would it be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it, is added, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All right, he uses the inferior complex here. There are some people that say, well, and I've, I've run into these people. They, they come to church and they say, well, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm nothing really that important at the church. I mean, you know, I sort of come, I take up space. Um, I'm not, I, I can't sing. I can't teach, I can't preach, um, I, I just, you know, if I, if I didn't even come, they wouldn't even miss me. Well, that's sort of like the, the foot that says, uh, because I'm not some prominent, important part of the body, I'm not part of the body. But it doesn't realize how important it is. That's right. That's what Paul's getting at. You can't look around and say, well, because I'm not an ear, because I'm not an eye, because I'm not this or that or the other thing, I don't matter. You do matter. God put you in the body of Christ for a very important reason. And it's a position that only you can fulfill. You know, and this goes back to my reading of my big anatomy book. I love reading anatomy books. You know that. It's crazy, but that's how I put myself to sleep at night. <coughs> and I read about the organ like the pancreas that has several cells in it that produce certain hormones that are necessary for your life. Now, what if those cells say, you know, all I do is sit here all day long and make insulin. I don't, I'm not really needed. What happens to you? You end up being diabetic. You end up being diabetic, and if you're not careful, you're dead. You're dead. Yeah, I'm hidden. I'm out of sight. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the one obvious. I'm not the one out in front. Let me ask you a question. How many people would come here I want, to raise a, I want you to raise your hand. How many of you would attend Church the Open Door if we decided to stop cleaning all the bathrooms for a month? 
That's probably what you would do. What would it, what would it do? It would hamper. It would hamper it, right? You think, well, I'm not much. You know, all I do is clean the bathroom at the church. Well, you know what? That's an important thing, actually. No, you want to bring your friends to church when the bathrooms are gross? No, you don't want to do that. So you're saying as much as the head is in control of the body, the head listens to the body. There's a synergy between them. And as, the, as a member of the body of Christ, we all have a specific function. We talked about this with spiritual gifts. We all have a specific function in the body of Christ that only we can do. And we can do best. And if the pancreatic cell that makes insulin decides it doesn't want to make insulin, it wants to make something else, you die. You don't function. You, you're, you're, you're on your way to death. Because each part is designed to do a certain function. And so it is in the body of Christ. And we've got to get out of this mindset. See, we live in a society today where who are the big shots? They're the ones that stand up. They're the ones that sing the solos. They're the ones that are prominent. They're the ones you see on the platform. And some people say, well, I'm not really one of those. I mean, good night. All I do is go to work five days a week. And, you know, I come to church and I, I do what I can, but I'm not one of those prominent people. And if I got ran over by a truck, the church probably wouldn't miss me for a month. Well, wait a minute. Maybe you're in a particular spot that only you can fulfill. And we can't, we got to get out of this mindset in America that somehow in order for us to be important we got to be prominent. We need to do what God's called us to do. And here's the, here's the beauty of this. God does not reward you on what your job title was or what your function was. God rewards you on how well did you do the function that he gave you to do. That's the difference. That's the thing about Christ. And sometimes the pastors and the, and the evangelists and the major Christian leaders are going to have a lot less reward than someone who comes into church every day and works in the nursery with a bunch of screaming kids and loves them to death and shows the love of Jesus to them. They might get a greater reward than the pastor of the church because they're faithful to what God has called them to do. And we got to understand that God has given each of us a gift. There's, there, all of you have things that you want to do in a church. Go do it. Good night. Don't sit on the chair. Don't sit in the pew. If there's something that you want to do, have at it. That's what your spiritual gift is. So if the restrooms need clean, we should go in there and do it, right? If, if, if you like to clean bathrooms, clean the bathrooms. If I don't like it, do it anyway. Right? Yeah, well, maybe sometimes you have to do those things you don't like to do. But, but we all have a part in this. We all have a, a function to, to, to perform. And when we all work together, what happens? Uh, things Things work. Things work. When all the parts of your body do what each part of the body is designed to do, you're healthy. You can function. When parts of your body decide they're going to go AWOL or they're not going to do their job, you've got physical problems, diseases, and sometimes you're probably even going to die. Yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. and just went on her merry way, you'd be like really offended. Yeah. You'd be like, you know, 
I know it was the best thing for you, and I know that you would have really liked to use it, you know, and I mean, that would hurt you. Right. That's the same thing with God. It hurts God when we don't use our gifts that he gives us, and that's why it's so important for us to take the spiritual gifts inventories that are right. you know, available that the church offers, you know, either on a website or in the membership book, or you can even go online and get one free, but they're important because that's what we're made for. And that's even easier than that to find your spiritual gift. Just think if you were able to do anything in the church you wanted to do and enjoy doing, what would it be? And that's going to land pretty close to what your giftedness is. All right, that's going to be pretty close. You know, we get this idea of spiritual gifts that whenever we do them, it's a chore, it's a burden. We're going to hate it. No, you're not going to hate it. You're going to love it. That's how God's designed you. Yeah, you, you, you love to do what God's designed you to do. Do it. And we all function together. See, because one of the problems here with the foot syndrome is we get this idea, I don't like the gift I have, I want to be something else. And whenever you do that, you're not appreciating the gift that God has given you. No. Right. Spiritual gifts should not be a confusing thing. It really isn't. I mean, if you ask me, what's the one thing I want to do? I, like, I love teaching. I love it. I enjoy it. I, this is what I like to do. I don't want to preach. And believe me, you don't want me to sing. <laughs> All right? But I can do this. This is what my giftedness is. So I do this, and other people do the singing, and other people do the preaching, and other people do the counseling. And when we all function together, we all have a stronger body than any individual ones would have. And I find it interesting. This is the... Now, Paul here is talking about the universal body, right? But I found that even in a local assembly of believers, the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing in the right people for the right jobs. It's amazing how it works. I remember when I was a young child, we, um, we built church, uh, Oberlin Calvary Baptist Church. I remember that. My dad helped found that church. And we went to build the church out there. Um, we had, we did it ourselves, basically. We did most of the stuff ourselves. We had a heating and air conditioning specialist. We had two carpenters. We had a professional electrician. We had everybody we needed. I mean, the only thing we needed to do was have somebody pour concrete and do the plumbing, the rough-in plumbing. Other than that, we had one family. And look, we're, t we're talking about a, a church with 10 to 15 families in it. But we had one of everything we needed to build that church because God just brought the right people along at the right time to do the right thing. And the, the beauty of this is if you allow the Holy Spirit to move, this thing works. What, what the problem is, is when you try to take someone with a spiritual gift A and try to pound them into a hole with spiritual gift B, it's frustrating for them, it's frustrating for you, it messes up the church, it doesn't work. Find your area of giftedness and do it. And like the foot, don't say, because I'm not an ear, I'm not an eye, I'm not something else, I'm not needed. I'm not important. I'm not part of the body. You are part of the body. You're a necessary part of the body. And then he says, the eye cannot say to the head, to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again the hand, head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Wow. What if your eye, and he's using a 
eye medical. The eye says, you know, I don't need the hands and the feet. You know, I'm, I'm great. What would the eye do? It would stare at the wall every day, right? Couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't do anything, right? The eye needs the hand. The eye needs the feet. The eye needs those parts that are less prominent. And this is the other danger, because sometimes people who have great giftedness say, well, you know, that they, we don't really need those people over there. That's like your eye saying, I don't really need the foot. I don't really need the hand. I don't really need that part that's sort of ugly and we've got to hide it. I, we don't need that. Look, sometimes that's the most important part of the whole body. So not only do you have the inferiority complex where a foot says, because I'm not the hand, I'm not needed, or I'm not the eye, I'm not needed, but you have the hand or the eye that says, I don't need these other parts. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. And Paul is saying in the church, we all need one another. On those parts of the body we think less honorable, we stow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What is that saying? We don't, we don't label people. We don't we don't we don't create a unwritten spiritual pecking order dependent on your spiritual gift. That's that's what people do in the church. That's what we do to ourselves. And we do to ourselves. There there is no religious pecking order. Christ is the head and we are all what? Members. We're all members. Now, now, that doesn't mean, and we're going to get to this later, that doesn't mean there's not an organizational structure to the church. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the value of each member in the body of Christ. Every member is equally as valuable as every other member in the body of Christ. We're all equally valuable. We're all equally necessary. And God has designed the body, the physical body, so that there's no division between the parts of the body. Even so in the body of Christ, there should be no division between the parts of the body. Because if there's division in the parts of the body, what happens? The church doesn't function. Something's awry. It doesn't work. So the opposite of ego is being humble then, basically. Well, that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, to think, others better of, think of others better than yourselves, to show everybody respect, regardless of where they're at on the spiritual pecking order. Don't go there. We're all needed. We're all a necessary part of the body of Christ. People that are hesitant to even look for their gift or at least or even use it for that matter tend to be really nearsighted. Yeah. They don't capture the bigger vision. And because they don't witness how much difference they will make in the body, they just assume, you know, I'm not even going to condemn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the point is, God has given all of us in here, everyone sitting in here is a believer, you have a spiritual gift. And you ought to be using it. Because when you use your spiritual gift, and everybody else around you is using their spiritual gifts, the body functions well. Just like your body. But if parts of your body decide to go AWOL, or parts of your body decide to go on strike, what happens? You have problems. If you smash your finger, 
the whole body hurts. I'll tell you that. If you get a dust mote in your eye, the whole body suffers. And the same thing holds true in the body of Christ. When one of our members is suffering, the whole body suffers. Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians is that you do That's right. have a part. And you need to play that part. Yeah. Yeah. The body functions well together. And we all have a part in this. And you're right, some people are encouragers. Some people you know, bring a smile to your face when you see them and other and they're they're there to, you know, do the cooking and the cleaning and they're they're just as much a body part of the body of Christ and they're just as honored as the pastor or the church leader. I mean we're all part of this together. And that's what Paul is saying. There should be no division in the body. We all need to work together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members in it. There's, there's the connection. You are the body of Christ. So if you look at the body of Christ and you look at yourself, are you functioning in the body of Christ the way God has designed you to function in the body of Christ? And if you're not, why not? You should be doing it. And here's the other thing, just as an aside, and I, again, we could spend the whole hour on this and never get to the next set of metaphors here, but we need to be careful not to be intimidated into doing something we're not designed to do. All right? Um, some of us don't have a particular gifting. Don't allow yourself to be coerced by well-meaning people that say, oh, you should be in uh, this. You should be doing this. And you're like, well, there's, I don't have a gifting for it. I don't really, nah. Oh, you really need to do that. Spiritual people go in and do that. That's what happens. We get this whole idea that everybody needs to be doing this or everybody needs to be doing that. No, they're not. Daryl Farney for years pressured me to be part of EE. He said, oh, you'd be good in that. I said, no, I, I've tried that. I know what it's like. I'm not good at that, but I am good at this. So I'm going to do this and you do that. I don't need to... And, it's, and you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, you're not as spiritual because spiritual people are the ones that are in this. No. You need to be gifted for that. <laughs> and if you're gifted for that, you ought to be doing that. And you're going to love to do it. And you're going to enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing what I do. I can't do both. So I'm going to do what God's gifted me to do. You do what God's gifted you to do. And uh, I didn't allow myself to be intimidated into doing something that's not my gifting. Do what God's designed you to do. And when you do that, we all function together in the body of Christ. And there's health in the body of Christ. And if you're trying to do something you're not gifted to do, that's like your eye trying to do what the ear does. It, it, that's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Here's a second metaphor, the bride and the groom. This is a very rich one. And uh, it's 
goes out of the wedding customs of that day. Pictures the love that Christ has for the church by comparing it to the love between a man and his wife. It is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, his church. And what does it do? It, it describes his love for the church in the sense of it's an unconditional love. That's the beauty of this thing. It's not like Christ says, okay, I'm going to love you guys if you do this, 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 and this. That's not the way it works. How, what kind of marriage would you have if you told your wife, well, I'll love you if you do this, 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 and this. What kind of marriage is that? That's a bad one. It's based on unconditional love. It's an unbounded love. It, it knows no bounds. Christ would do anything for the church. In fact, how did he show his love for the church, according to Ephesians 5? He died for the church. However, legalism says it is conditional. It's not. God's love, Christ's love. Now, the vibrancy of the relationship is, is, conditional. is conditional. But the relationship itself is not. All right? And then it's unknowable. It, it, it's so unfathomable, it's hard for us to comprehend why would Christ love us. I've not figured that one out. It's unmerited, it's undeserved. We don't deserve his love. But he's given his life for the church. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, this is really where this great metaphor lies. Alright. Now I'm just going to read the passage, comment on it, so don't throw things at me until I'm done. Um, I'm joking. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands it's talking about family it's talking about the home in the home who's the head of the home who's responsible for the home the husband is responsible for the home and the wife here is to line up under the word there's an interesting word it does not mean as it is in chapter six obey it's not talking about obedience it's talking about submission what is what's the difference Willingness. willingness it's not it's not saying wives obey your husbands that's not what it's talking about it's saying wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord um, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself the Savior why should the wife submit herself to the husband just like we submit ourselves to Christ why wouldn't we want to submit ourselves to Christ what, what, what has Christ done for us? Everything. Who, who in their right mind would spurn that kind of love? Think about it. And it's easier to, to agree with that, not that we should have to decide to agree with truth in Scripture, but we do decide that. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to do so when we start with verse 21, where we're submitting to each other. Yeah. And, and, and there, there is a mutuality, by the, and that's a good point, in, within the family, there's a mutuality of submission. But when it comes down to the bottom line, one person is the head of the home, that is the husband. That's God's design. And a wise husband takes into account what? The wives. The wives. Yeah. He takes, her, takes that into consideration. 
all right, within the home. But this is talking about the metaphor here is Christ. Christ is the our bride, our bridegroom, and and He has given Himself for the church. He died for the church, and as the church, we are to submit ourselves to Christ, just as the wife submits herself to her husband. But let's go on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't disobey Scripture. You have to lovingly refuse to go along with that. But you do what First Peter 3 says. You're to be the best wife you can. Don't violate the command of God, but still be the best wife you can. Why? Because your life might draw him to Christ. You know, that, that's a topic for a whole other discussion, but that's the short answer. Okay? Um, but, but one of the things here that one of the problems is a lot of times when we read this passage, the preacher likes to stop with the submission part. And he doesn't get on to the love part. The love part is the harder part of this thing. Because how is the husband to love his wife? He's to love her like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died for it. He gave up everything for the church. He gave up his own life. She is still, to, the, the Bible still says, stick with the scripture, you do what you're called to do. You don't say, I'm going to do what the Bible tells me to do as long as that other person does what the Bible tells them to do. No, it doesn't work, doesn't work. So, but, but, but not to follow him when he is unbiblical. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. If he says, hey, let's go out drinking tonight and get drunk, well, you can't do that. You know, that, yeah, but, but that's the first Peter 3 where it comes in. But what, what you see here, and this is the metaphor I want to get to, Christ gave himself for the church. He gave up everything for the church. And just stop and think about that. Why would I not want to submit myself to Christ? That's it. Wait a minute. Now, now he died for me. He wants the absolute best for me. He wants to take care of me. He wants me pure. Why would I not want to submit to that kind of love? And that's what it says in verse 26 to 30. Yeah. Read that, Alan. Um, it says, so that, and that's the reason he might yeah. so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. Yeah, because it's, we want to be sanctified and mm -hmm. different and cleansed and be a clean member of the body. Yeah, you bring any sane woman, you talk to any sane woman, 
and says, if you had a husband that would be willing to die for you, if you had a husband that would take care of you and love you and do everything he could to bring you joy and happiness and take care of you, would you submit to him? Well, that's a no-brainer, right? <laughs> Should be. Of course, why not? Notice so I said any sane woman. Now, I might get a feminazi in here that says bag it, but, but a sane person. Why? Because that's what God has designed the woman to be. That's what God's designed the man to be. We're designed that way. That's how God has designed us. Well, the problem comes in when they're not evenly yoked. Well, and we, have, and we live in a fallen world, and that's where, you know, again, I don't want to get too far down this road because we'd be here all day. The first Peter 3 falls in where the, where the wife is to submit herself to her husband and, and love him, even if he's not a believer, because maybe he'll come. But if the husband just doesn't want to live with her, she should let him go. If, he, if that's unacceptable, she should let him go. But um, the, the point that I want to get here in this metaphor is that just as the, 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 the family, the, the husband-wife marriage relationship, is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And just as the wife willingly, joyfully, gladly submits herself to the leadership of her husband who wants the best for her, who wants to take care of her, who loves her, who wants to meet her needs, whose greatest joy is to bring her joy and happiness just as she would willingly submit to that, so we should willingly submit to our Lord that wants to do the same for us. We don't, we don't serve a husband that hates us. We serve a husband that loves us as in the church. Christ loved the church. He gave his life for the church. Why would we not want to respond to that kind of sacrificial love? And that's, that's what we should do. Because he wants to present us blameless and holy. He didn't die so that we could just go on and be sinful and do our own thing. He died to make us holy. And it says here, for we, we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's weaving the two concepts together. The marriage bond that we have that was instituted by God in Genesis is a picture of Christ in the church. Us two are one flesh. We are one body. We, 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 we work together. And the church should be submissive to Christ. And, and when you see a church that is overwhelmed with the love and, and under, or, or pursuit of the love of Christ and understanding what that love is and what that love means, obedience is not a burden. See, that's, that's the thing. We think, oh, obedience is a burden. i got to do it because he said so, and he'll go whack me with a board if I don't. No, he loves you. This is, this is not someone who just wants to make you miserable for the sake of making you miserable. This is someone that has your best interests at heart. He wants the absolute best for you. Why would you not want to submit to that kind of leadership? You'd be nuts if you didn't. And, and there's a lot of nutty people out there, I guess. But it's a, it's a, it's a great picture of Christ in the church, his, his love for the church. He laid down his life for the church. Then we have the picture of the vine and the branches. This is John chapter 15. John 15. What is Christ saying? I am the vine, you are the branches. 
What's being seen here? Well, how does a branch bear fruit? It has to be connected to the vine. This is a very important concept. A lot of us go around saying, I want to bear fruit, I want to bear fruit, I want to bear fruit. But we're not connected to the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, can you bear fruit? No. No, that's a no-brainer. It should be. As a branch were to abide in the vine, what does that mean? We draw our spiritual life and substance from God. And this is, this is something very important, okay? If you focus on abiding in the vine, fruit is a natural outgrowth of your life. That sounds profound, doesn't it? But it's true. You abide in the vine. You worry about your relationship to Christ. You worry about your life with him. You worry about being as godly as you can be. And as you abide in the vine, what's going to happen as a natural byproduct? You're going to bear fruit. You can't bear fruit on your own. You can't umph it up on your own. You can't decide one day, I'm going to go bear a grape today. I'm going to witness to somebody and bring them to Christ. It's going to happen. It won't happen that way. It happens as you abide in the vine. As you gain nourishment from the vine, you will bear fruit. Yes. You could be a branch on the vine and you could still get so diseased that you die. Yeah. What's the role of the branch? To bear fruit. But it, it can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine. To bear much fruit. And to be pruned. I mean, what's something that, what, what, what does God have to do sometimes? He has to come and have to snip off a little bit of you, you know? Don't like that. Don't like being pruned. But he's using a, a, an agrarian metaphor that everybody that heard him would know exactly what he was talking about. Because could, they could probably look up from where Christ is teaching and see the vines out on the hillsides and understand, oh, that's what it is. It's, I need to abide in, in the vines so that I can bear fruit. And, and I know that sometimes they have to cut off branches that don't bear fruit. They have to cut off the dead stuff. And what, what happens to the dead stuff? gets burned. It gets thrown away. And the more you prune it, the more fruit it bears. You get rid of the dead branches. You get rid of the... You know, this, summer, this, this year I'm pruning back my rose bushes a little bit. Why? Because I'll get more roses. That, just, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You're cutting it off to get more roses? Well, that's just the way it works. Now again, only things I grow are accidental. All right. If a flower is a weed and it grows, I got great flowers, you know. But if it's if I try to grow it, it dies. All right. I'm not Dave. I, Dave can look at something that'll grow and be really nice, and he's got that green thumb. And my stuff, well, you know, it's sort of sickly and poor. And but uh, the whole point here is that the metaphor of the, of the branch and the vine is a connectedness to our life. We need to be connected to Christ. By the way, that sounds like something you've heard here at Open Door, hasn't it? Remember the C-H-R-I-S-T yes. acronym? What's C? Connected. Connected. That's important. Connected to God through prayer and reading of the word. Connected. If you're not connected, you're not going to bear fruit. You're not going to bear fruit. It ain't going to happen. And the, the amount of fruit you bear is directly connected to how well you're connected to the vine. How closely you're connected to the vine. 
and how you allow yourself to be pruned. Um, discipline. Trials. Trials. Trials that come in our life. You know, w one of our great, you know, I've been pondering this lately, one of the great distractions we have in our society is we get distracted a lot by a lot of things. And, um, you know, it's sort of easy to become distracted with all the stuff going on around us. I was listening to a message from somebody this last week. And he was talking about the bane of video games. The Wii and all that other kind of stuff. And I was reading an article about this woman who's divorcing her husband because all he does is play video games. He says he comes home from work, he grabs something to drink, he goes in, and he's on War of Witchcraft or War of Worlds or War of Warcraft or something. World of Warcraft. He's on, see, I don't even know the stupid thing. Wow, he's on WoW. And he says he's on WoW till 2 or 3 in the morning. And he goes to bed, he gets up the next day, goes to work, comes home and gets back on WoW. And then the weekend is even worse. He comes home on Friday and he doesn't get off of WoW until Monday morning. So I never see the guy. I never see the guy. We get distracted. We got to watch that. Those people ought to be shot. I'm sorry, I'll pull the trigger. I'll, I'll buy the bullets. I mean, the point is, look, folks, we're distracted. We live in a distracting world. We can be distracted by the television, distracted by entertainment. And sometimes God has to prune that away from us. He's got to take out the weed whacker and start whacking off some of this stuff. Sometimes it's painful. Um, but if we're going to bear fruit, we can't be burning all of our energy a war, world of Warcraft or whatever it is. Wow, or whatever it is. Got it. We can't be burning our time and energy on that. We get distracted. So that's one of the ways in which we get pruned. Um, another metaphor is the shepherd and the sheep. This is a great metaphor. What it shows is Christ's loving care for the church, much like that of a shepherd for the sheep. Now, we are not familiar with this metaphor because how many of us have seen shepherds with sheep? Anybody, any of you have? No, we're not used to that. Yeah, you went one time. Go to New Zealand where they raise sheep. I mean, that's one of their major industries down there. And being a shepherd is a lot of work. Because sheep are really dirty creatures. You say, wait a minute, all the ones I see on the cartoons are all nice and fluffy and white. Don't bet on it. They're not fluffy and white. They produce lanolin, which is a greasy kind of excretion that, that just attracts dirt. So if they walk by something dirty, it's like pig pen on Charlie Brown. He just attracts the dirt. They're very dirty creatures. They, they are dumb. They're the dumbest animal on the planet. And so are we. They are. They really are. Um, they're the only animal that, that can be lost, completely lost, within a couple miles of home. 
and not be able to get home. So I was like, well, if I didn't have my tom-tom, I'd really be in trouble. Um, well, no, they, they, they are. They, they can be lost within a couple miles of home. And when they're lost, all they do is they walk around in circles so they fall over dead. They have no way to get, they have no sense of direction at all. When they, get, when they fall down, it's hard for them to get up. If they eat the wrong thing, they can get diarrhea that kills them. Um, if the water is too noisy, they won't drink the water. They will die of thirst next to a brook that's too noisy because they're afraid to go and get a drink of water. Look, I think, and, and you know, I, I heard somebody say, my opinion is God created the sheep specifically to be a metaphor <laughs> for us. I mean, they're they specifically designed to picture us. They need constant care. Constant care. But the other interesting thing about sheep is that they know who the shepherd is. In those days, uh, you'd have a, most towns had a central sheep pen, sheepfold, in the middle of town. And so all the shepherds would bring their sheep and they would all go, all the sheep together would go into the sheepfold. So you'd have this massive sheepfold full of all of these sheep and in the morning when it was time to go out to the pasture the shepherd would come he would call and only his sheep would come to him and follow him they wouldn't listen to any other shepherd but they knew the voice of their shepherd that's interesting we should know the voice of the shepherd shouldn't we when Christ speaks we should know it's him speaking and not some other joker Right. Only humans can be dumber than a sheep. By choice. Yeah. But uh, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And what does the shepherd do? The shepherd cares for the sheep. He tends the flock. He protects them. He leads them to green pastures. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Why? Because the noisy ones, I won't drink. I, he, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He takes care of me. That's what Christ does. That's the metaphor. And to me, the shepherd has to get into the sheep's messes in yeah. order to get them out. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a little paperback book, it's only about that thick, and it's written by a shepherd. Right. And it's wonderful. And he even talks about how these bugs or whatever go up the nose of a sheep. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yep. He is the great shepherd. And not only is he the great shepherd, but the, the imagery in, in Peter is that the pastor is an under-shepherd. What is pastor? Pastor comes from poiamen. What's that mean? To shepherd. The job of a pastor, we're going to look at this in, our, in the officers of the church. One of the jobs of the pastor is to shepherd the flock as an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. And it shows the care. The shepherd metaphor shows Christ's care and attention to the church. He feeds the church. What is that? Where do we get our substance? What should we be fed? Where should we get our spiritual food? From the Word of God. All right? Not from some whack job on TBN. You get it from the Word of God. You get it from this book here. This is where we get our nourishment, our feeding. And in fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, their job is to do what? To feed the people the Word. 
And he said, you know that for night and day I cease not to warn every one of you with tears. And he says, I did not fail to proclaim unto you the whole counsel of God. I fed you the word of God. I fed you good, solid, spiritual food. I didn't give you loco weed. I fed you good stuff. And not only is the shepherd to feed, the shepherd is to lead. He leads the sheep. He takes them to the green pastures. He takes them to the waters. He, he leads the sheep to find the necessary food. There's a leadership. What does Christ do? Christ leads the church. And then he binds up the wounds of the church. What does that mean? Well, when the sh a sheep would hurt itself, it has no way to protect itself. So what does Christ have to do? He has to bind up the wounds. He has to pour oil in the wounds so that it doesn't become infected. And when we hurt ourselves in the church, Christ comes along and he binds up the wounds. He takes care of us. And he protects the church. Why? Because the sheep is the most defenseless animal on the planet. It's like those people in the monster movies. You know, the woman that's there screaming while the monster walks a mile to eat her. Why doesn't she just run? Well, I guess you wouldn't have an exciting movie, right? Yeah, she falls and then he gets eaten, you know, or whatever, you know. But, monster you know it's like run go somewhere but but the sheep what does the sheep do the, sh the sheep is defenseless absolutely defenseless Christ has to defend the sheep and by the way one of the one of the jobs of the sh of the pastor the shepherd of the church is to do what he's to feed the flock what the word of God he's to lead the church where in the paths of scripture where God would lead us he is to help bind up the wounds of the church. He's, I use the term weed, or uh, feed, lead, and weed. Part of it is weeding. What does that mean? Protecting the church. How does he, how does it, how's the pastor to protect the church? Well, from false doctrine, from people who would spoil the flock. And see, that's what Paul said. He says, after my departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. One of the jobs, he told the elders of Ephesus, we're going to look at this when we get to the pastors, one of your jobs is you need to watch out for the wolves that come in to the flock to destroy it. You've got to keep your eye out for them and protect the flock from them. And that's part of the job of the shepherd. But it's a wonderful picture of Christ's care for the church. Yeah? Uh, what you said that I didn't know before was about the noisy wires, mm -hmm. which made me think of he leadeth me beside the still that's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. You get to that little book and the, yeah, if, if the water, you can't take them by a mountain stream because they're scared to death of the noise and they'll, they'll, they'll die. So what the shepherd sometimes has to do is he has to make a channel off of the stream that, that's quiet for the sheep to drink from because if not, they, they won't go near the sound of the, the water. Yeah, what is it... Uh, yeah, the shepherds look at the 23rd Psalm, I think it is. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, Uncle Don can get it for you if you're interested. Yeah. Alan, I think my dog are cheap. She'll be walking and all of a sudden she'll fall down like a sheep. Yeah. She's got issues. Mm. I let her out the other day to use the pot. And we had just got her bait. And, and our backyard kind of flooded. 
And then she thought she was a pig. She was wallowing in the mud. Cheyenne, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Let's look at the priests. We're almost done here. Um, the Bible talks about us being a kingdom of priests. Now, what one thing did every Israelite know and was ingrained into them from the time they were born? What did they know about the priest? What did they know about worship? How did they get to God? And who did you go through? Priest. You did not go yourself. You did not decide one day, I'm going to go in, I'm going to offer sacrifice to God. Isaiah did that, and God struck him with leprosy. In the Old Covenant, you went through the priest. You had someone that you had to go through. The priest was representing man to God. An intercessor. The prophet um, represented God to man. The priest represented men to God. And you had to go through the high priest. You just didn't go by yourself. But what has God made all of us? A kingdom of priests. In what sense has he made us a kingdom of priests? We can approach God. We don't have to go through a priest. Now, who is our great high priest? Jesus Christ. He is the one that paved the way for us. He's the one that allows us or has made it possible for us to enter God's presence. But I don't go through a human priest. So that sort of bags the whole Catholic Church idea, right? Where you've got to go through the priest. We don't have to do that. We can go directly to God at any time. We've been made a kingdom of priests in Peter. Yeah, he ripped the veil down. We have, we have access to God now through Christ. We have access to God. I can go directly to God. I don't need to go through someone else. And this metaphor is used a lot. For example, in Romans, it talks about our body as what? A living sacrifice. I am the, the Old Testament priests, they made sacrifices to God. But in the New Covenant, my body is a living sacrifice. I present it every day to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Our praise is seen as an offering to God. When we worship God, we sing praises to his name. That's worship. We are acting as a priest. We have that ability to worship him. Our acts of good works are seen as offerings to God. Offer up a life of good works. Our substance is a sacrifice to God. When we give and we... um, donate our time and our energy and our effort we're acting like a priest we're worshiping God and that's something all of us should be doing the beauty of the new covenant is I don't have to go through another person to get to God I go directly into God's presence not because I deserve to be there because we all know that right but who has made it possible for me to get into his presence Christ. Christ is the one that tore the veil, that rent it from top to bottom, that made the way wide open. Think about it. In the Old Testament, what is God saying? I'm holy, you're not, stay away from me. And if you get too close, I'm going to kill you. The only time you can get close to me is once a year, one of you can come in there after doing all this rigmarole, you can come in and you can sprinkle the blood, and if you're lucky, I won't kill you. God is saying, stay away. But what happened in the New Covenant? That, that, that veil, that wall was torn down and now what do we have? We have access to God. Because of the blood of Christ, we can come into his presence. Without fear, we can serve him. Then finally, 
we are seen as a building of God. Which, what do you know about a building? Each part of a building is built up to do what? To make a structure, right? And we are a building of God. We are, we are living stones. And who's the, uh, who's the chief cornerstone? Christ is. Now, what is the cornerstone? The cornerstone can be seen as a couple of things. One, it can be seen as the first stone you lay and all the lines of the building emanate from this cornerstone. Some have even referred to it as the capstone. What's a capstone? That's the last stone you stick on the thing to complete the building. Now, until the building is completed, what function does the capstone play? It's in the way, right? If it's the last one, yes. It's in the way. Until the building is completed and that capstone is placed, then it's say, it's done. Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the stone that completes the building. We're, we're members of the building. We, we, are, we are part of that building, but he is the most prominent stone. He's the one that completes the structure. And the metaphor is interesting that some stumble over this cornerstone, right? They stumble over it. The Jews, what do they do? They stumble over Christ as the chief cornerstone. But to us, what is he? He is the most precious stone because he's the stone that completes the building. Yeah, the experts. We're not going to use that stone. And what do you do? You wind up using that stone to finish the building. That shows the experts of men and how our expertise doesn't really get anywhere. I'm done a minute early. Don't get used to it. All right. We meet next week and then we're off a week. Right. So. Father, thank you for this day you've granted and thank you for these metaphors of the church that we've been able to see. And I pray that you would help us to ponder the truths there and uh, make it apply to our lives. And we just thank you again for such a gorgeous day. In Christ's name, amen. Okay.